food security is the biggest challenge, not just for India, which has the largest number of mouths to feed, but globally as well. As farmers across the political borders battle weather and war, supply chains continue to get more and more volatile and vulnerable. From fixing floor prices for over a dozen crops and banning imports of key products, India has been grappling with ways to inch closer to what seems like an impossible task. Zero hunger by 2030. Climate change is no longer a devil in disguise. Floods, heat waves and other weather extremes are making agriculture increasingly precarious, especially in the global south. India, for example, has faced its lowest rainfall in half a decade last season. This is following year after year the battle with El Nino. The subcontinent is already feeding over a billion people and is expected to add over 250 million over the next 30 years. To put that into perspective, it's like adding in Germany, France, UK as well as Thailand to the dinner table. Some estimates suggest that India will need to raise farm output by at least 30% over the next three decades. As we stand 60 years after India's Green Revolution, one has to wonder, where is all this food going to come from? Economic Times' Shambhavi Anand gets answers from a global agri-veteran as she sits down with Dr. Seth Meyer, Chief Economist of the United States Department of Agriculture. I think we will have real challenges in terms of our farmers' adaptability to climate change. We will see large swings in production that will challenge food security. We need to work on productivity improvements, doing more with less. You want to make sure that policies are not so prescriptive that it keeps farmers from being able to do better practices. It's the last day of the first month of 2024, and we are exploring, is India in a desperate need for a second green revolution? Here on the Morning Brief podcast. We have Dr. Seth Meyer from the USDA on uh, the podcast with us today. Welcome, Dr. Meyer. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So let's get straight to the point. What kind of impact do you think will climate change have on food security for the world? In agriculture, we're very used to dealing with the vagaries of weather historically. But I think this adds another layer of extreme. I think we'll have real challenges in terms of our farmers' adaptability to climate change. I think we'll see more swings in production. You know, we will have to put a lot of efforts into adaptability. Otherwise, we will see large swings in production that will challenge food security. We've seen this year, for instance, we had three years of a La Nina and into an El Nino. And these are normal weather patterns that we're used to dealing with. So as we see additional climate change, we will see additional larger shocks for which we will have to adapt. India is more at the receiving end of the climate change. What climate resilient policies do you think uh, we must adopt? Well, I'm not an an expert on Indian agriculture, but I can talk to you about from our own experience. We can think of a few different things. For instance, in the U.S., when we think about policies, we have crop insurance products. We need to make sure that those crop insurance products help producers be resilient. At the same time, you want to make sure that those crop insurance products policies are not so prescriptive that it keeps farmers from being able to do better practices. So we need to make sure that we have 
both the technical means to adapt and policies which don't get in the way of a farmer's ability to impose or practice those techniques in order to adjust to climate. India recently lost M.S. Swaminathan. He was the father of green revolution in India. So is something like a green revolution needed in India at the moment? So I think, and we talked about it a bit in the conference where we had a, a meeting with some of your industry representatives who are users of grains and oil seeds within the domestic sector. And I talked in my presentation about the need for productivity growth. So the green revolution is being one aspect of productivity growth. So when you think about the challenges within agriculture, the, the challenges agriculture needs to meet, we got three objectives. We need to first provide safe, affordable food. Okay. And then second, we need to provide farm income. So farmers need to be able to produce that safe and affordable food and make a living doing it. And then finally, we've got to do it in a sustainable way where we're not mining the soil or we're not damaging in our environment and we can continue to maintain that production. So when you talk about green revolution, I think that if we make that more broad and we say we need to work on productivity improvements, doing more with less, it doesn't mean we should produce as much as we can on every acre. That's not what it means. It means we should efficiently say, how much can we get out of these limited resources and allocate them in a way that we can get the most out of it? And so I think absolutely when we look forward and we say, and India is a great example of this, you've got a growing population, you've got economy, which is growing at over 7% a year. And so you've got people with incomes who would like to enjoy that income with more or better quality of products and more diverse quality of products in the marketplace. We need to be able to satisfy that demand. And, and, and with that demand growing, we need some type of increase in productivity. I wouldn't lean it, tie it back to just yield improvements, although that's important. Mm -hmm. I think about things like high efficiency fertilizers and a high efficiency fertilizer can help achieve those three goals. So first, maybe it reduces the producer's need for fertilizer and saves them money. They pass some of that money on to consumers through lower prices. And then finally, it reduces the amount of fertilizer we're putting down and it has environmental benefits. Oops. So we need those kind of productivity gains. Sure. So from time to time, India has been restricting exports of several commodities, you know, wheat, um, rice, onion, sugar. Do you think these have an impact on global food security in some ways? So I'm an economist. So when I think about the general principles of some of these types of activities and my experience and I, when I've watched things through history, I mean, one example would be uh, of this kind of practice is this past uh, year, we had Indonesia put oil, palm oil controls on export controls. Right. And you see that this tends to introduce a lot of volatility into the market. Mm -hmm. And you are trying to internally to solve an issue and you're really exporting. And we saw this in Indonesia. You saw the price of veg oil jump. Mm -hmm. You saw internally that the people who process palm oil fruit said, I don't want your palm oil. And it causes an internal disturbance. So I think as a general principle, um, Obviously, we have always have concerns about domestic food security, and, and you have to understand that, and, and especially in a country like India, you got to worry about domestic food security. But as a general principle, from what we observe, such as in the case of Indonesia, I think there is a, a short-term reaction that you're trying to get that is probably, as an economist, not a good long-term solution. From a U.S. perspective, you know, we've had three food price shocks in the last 15 years, three periods where we've seen jumps in commodity prices. 
And so even in the United States, when war in the Ukraine began and we saw a jump in wheat prices, you have some discussion about, well, should we be worried about wheat prices in the U.S.? Again, when I think about U.S. suppliers of agricultural commodities really pride themselves on being a reliable supplier. And if you want somebody to be a good customer, you have to also be a reliable supplier. So again, I'll put it in my view of the domestic U.S. agriculture. Our sector really prides itself on that, and they're known for it, and they defend it. If there would ever be a call for those kinds of things in the U.S., the U.S. producers understand that those short-term gains are not worth the long-term reputation loss that they would face. So they pride themselves on being reliable suppliers. To reduce emissions, India has started blending um, biofuel with petrol. How do you see this in a view of fuel versus food security issue? I mean, this one's a, a very complicated one, and we've one we've struggled with. When you have this shared use of feedstock or even a food grain like brokens, broken rice in India and in the United States, it might be corn or it might be biodiesel from soybean oil. You know, I think that. We, you look for a design of a policy that has safety valves, but it also provides the incentives for producers to continue to produce, and it also acts as an emergency reserve. You could always shut the biofuels off in an emergency, right? But you look for a policy which has some safety valves, which trigger, but again, it provides a, a source of income, an incentive for growth, an increase in productivity within the sector. So I think it's something that you have to manage. You have to be thoughtful about your policy. You need to respect the investment of the folks that are doing the biofuel processing. But at the same time, you do want to have some safety valves for emergency situations. But you're trying to achieve a very positive goal. You're trying to achieve some climate change goals at the same time. So I think as a general policy, these things can contribute both to farm income and to your environmental goals. And those are all good things. So now let's talk about America okay? and okay. Their, your agriculture, the, right. of which you are an expert. <laughs> America, again, seems to have suffered at the hands of big agriculture. This is our view here in India. Okay. Say uh, companies like Monsanto, ADM, Cargill. What is your observation on the surge in farmer suicide rate in, in the U.S.? You know, how pressing an issue is that? Any environment where you have, they're all small business owners right? They're all facing their own financial issues. So I think as a general sense, when you think about it's a very stressful job, it's a very stressful career, you know, you're always subject to the vagaries of weathers of weather of things you can't influence, yeah. right? Weather happened to you. You may be a very good farmer and have a very bad year. And this creates a lot of stress. So I think it is always something we are concerned about in the United States. I think that it's not something which is happening a tremendous amount more, but I think we are much more aware of it. And I think we need to be much more aware of it. And we need to be able to offer uh, systems and programs for those producers to get the help they need. It's a very noble profession, but it's a very stressful profession as well, too. Uh, we, are, we are grappling with it ourselves, you know. But and, and let me come back to a little bit of what you were saying about um you know, I, I know that there is a theme sometimes of, well, you, you know, you're being captured by big business or the, or, or, but, but I think that producers in the United States look for technology or pr 
productive uh, ways to increase their production and be competitive and be able to supply goods to the marketplace. And so, you know, in the U.S., we're always worried about making sure there are competition amongst these types of large input suppliers, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So it is not a problem to have a large company which does a lot of providing a lot of different kinds of seed. But what we need is more than one of them. We need a couple of them. We need several of them. We need to provide that competition. We need to make sure there are competition operating between them so that the producer doesn't feel captive down the line to one seed company or one place to send his his poultry to be slaughtered. And so, you know, I, I think from my standpoint, it's not necessarily that these companies are, that, you know, one of the, any of the individual companies are bad. I just like to see competition between them. Keeps them on their toes mm-hmm. and keeps some of that benefit flowing back to producers because they can't capture it all because they're in competition with each other. So that brings me to my next question. And I'll cite an example here, what I mean by big agriculture and, you know, monopolies mm-hmm. and all. So Monsanto, you know, it has grown vertically and integrated from seeds to fertilizers to pesticides, you know, everything under yeah. one. Don't you think, uh, or does the USDA not think that this is anti-competitive? I think that there, the problem here is that within those technologies, there is some synergies to vertical integration for those companies. My main concern would be to make sure that there are competition amongst these different seed providers. They're not the only seed so providers. So there is, is there that? Is there, there is, there is. And I think we need to make sure we continue to facilitate that. And it, it's kind of a challenge because... I think there are economies of scale within certain seed technologies and chemistries. But at the same time, you want to make sure that they aren't the sole provider Hmm. and that there's competition amongst them. Hmm. So we are always looking at, is there competition amongst the input suppliers? Is Hmm. there competition amongst the seed suppliers? How can we expand markets or facilitate markets for more feed and fertilizer producers? You're talking about specific examples of vertical integration within seed providers, but if you only have one place within a reasonable distance to sell your sheep, then you want to see competition. And so I think as USDA, I don't, my default is not that this is anti-competitive. My concern is let's have the innovation. Let's make sure we get competition within those sectors. There are economies of scale. Let's balance that with some competition. So let's talk of India vis-a-vis this, the same scenario. You know, how can the interest of a small farmer be protected in an event, India uh, decides to adopt mechanization and big agriculture, you know, the way it is in U.S. So we have very small farm holdings. In yes. It. So how can that be protected? So I, maybe I'll take a little bit of a different spin on this. I think there may be an Indian view that all our farms are huge. They're not. Uh, we have lots of medium and smaller sized farms as well, too. So one of the things that USDA ends up being very concerned about is when we talk about, you know, we we're talking about those three pillars and we need. Uh, technology improvements that can hit all three of those pillars. We at USDA also want them to be scalable. You don't want a technology solution that only applies to the biggest farmer because what will you get? You'll get more of the biggest farmers. You'll lose your small farmers and you'll get the biggest farmers. What you want to do is you want to provide productivity packages that say, I may be small. And what do we define as small? Maybe it's, I don't have much land, but I want to produce a good income. Maybe I am small geographically, but I don't want to be small in terms of my income, my revenue, right? And so I think we need to think about productivity gains, income streams for producers in the United States is one of our big things. And I think India is the same way. You got to figure out how 
those producers can maximize their return from the land holding they got. Basically, you want technologies that can help producers who are have limited geographic space, limited land, and maybe limited capital, and it, have that technology apply and have them boost their productivity. Now, that's a challenge. It's a real challenge. At the USDA, we also want to see these technologies as, as being scalable. Otherwise, if it's only for big farmers or capital uh, of farmers with lots of capitals, that's what you'll get more of. What is your perception about India, our agriculture, our uh, agricultural policies, and, you know, where we are heading the future? Ah, okay. So, again, one of my favorite parts of my job is to go around the world and, and see agriculture in different countries. Mm. And so when I come here, I think there is a tremendous amount of potential within the sector and and challenges and real challenges. And I, I think when you look, we were talking earlier, you got a growing population and a population where the income is growing and those folks will want more. You've got some gaps within your agricultural productivity. You've got some when I think about some of your crop yields or maybe your feed conversion in dairy, you know, how much milk you're getting per cow, there's a lot of room for growth. And so I think that there's a lot of potential within this country to fulfill a lot of its needs in terms of more calories and different calories. So I think there's a tremendous amount of potential here. I think we all face constraints. I think in the U.S., I tell the story, in the U.S., we both export and import a lot of agricultural goods. We do. And as a matter of fact, this year, in terms of value, we will import more than we export. And that's not maybe the perception that people have around. And so I think it provides a nice balance, though. I tell the story that when I was a young kid, I grew up in an area of, of the United States where in the wintertime, it might be minus 8C for several days in a row. Okay. And when you went to the, to the market, you could get very, very little. But now when I go into that same market as, as a not too old man, but a little bit, uh, you know, bordering on it, I can get many, many things that I want year round. And we at the U.S. can focus on the things that we are good at. So, you know, we're good at row crop production and we're good at oilseed production. And we might send those to Mexico and Mexico might send us back avocados or vegetables or blueberries during the winter. So, um I think India's got a lot of challenges and a lot of potential. And I think that it, it doesn't have to focus on doing everything because there's a lot of things it could do very well. But some of the challenges are making sure it scales to those small producers and that they can figure out how, what role that they want to play in this future of agriculture. Which is the agricultural commodity do you think will be the hot topic uh, in the coming years? We've had an El Nino year, like oh, you geez, said. Yeah. A world over, things are not like in the best shape. So agriculture-wise, which is the biggest commodity we will be worried about in the coming years? In the coming years is maybe a bit more difficult to say in, in, in a particular commodity. But when I look at the market conditions right now, not to get kind of into the, the nitty-gritty details here, but when we look at things that tell us about folks' comfort level or the uncertainty in the market, we do have a bit of a split net right now between food commodities, rice and wheat, and feed commodities, say corn and soybeans. And so I think we always need to be, we're used to the vagaries of weather and agriculture, but we always have to deal with them. We had three years of a La Nina. We had a very strong El Nino, and it looks like we're headed back to a La Nina. So again, I think we will have to monitor for 
We've come out of our third price spike. We will continue to have to monitor prices for food commodities in particular seem to be a bit more volatile, and we will have to monitor them going forward. I think we are in a situation where we will get back to more moderate. We have had such big shocks the last three years, COVID, and it's, it's, I feel almost bad predicting what will happen, but all goes well. Maybe we'll see some easing of commodity prices. And then you say, well, what should we worry about? I think we should worry about that we forget that we've had three price spikes in the last 15 years. We need to not lose sight of that. As we see prices moderate, we need to not lose sight of it. So our discussion about productivity yeah. and, and, and all the things that come with uh, having reliable partners, all the things that come with increasing productivity, those are the way that we'll face this next price spike that's coming down the road or this next production shock that's coming down the road. But beyond seeds and productivity, the bigger worry will be water. While India is home to almost 18% of the world's population, it only has 4% of the global freshwater resources. We use about 73% of our available freshwater in agriculture. In fact, if you look back, a large part of the Green Revolution's need for water was met by groundwater. And that part is shrinking or rather evaporating at a fast pace. In Punjab, Rajasthan and Tamil Nadu, 76%, 63% and 40% of the groundwater blocks respectively are now overexploited, which means the used excessive groundwater is threatening to overtake the groundwater recharged. In fact, I came across another very interesting or rather worrying statistic that rain-fed rice yields in India are projected to reduce by 20% in the next three decades and nearly 50% by 2080. India surely, as many experts have been highlighting, needs an urgent and sustainable makeover for its agri-sector as it faces the biggest challenge of food security in the new global economic and climate landscape. With that, it's a wrap on this episode of The Morning Brief. Stay tuned. A lot lined up post the union budget on Thursday. So tune into the podcast platform of your choice as we decode what the budget delivers. From all of us here at Team TMB, thank you for listening in and have a great day.